You're fed up with the nine to five. You've been working hard for years and you're just not seeing the results you want. You want to break free from the traditional career, but don't know how. Business Breaks is here to help. Hello, this is the Business Breaks podcast and your co-hosts Dante Healy and John Byrne are going to discuss having efficient growth in your business. And as you expand a business, it can be both exciting and overwhelming. In order to effectively increase your size and reach, it's very important to plan ahead and use a few different strategies. So business growth, a term that's used is scaling. And that's the idea in as your revenues increase, your costs would also rise, but shouldn't be increasing at a rate that wipes out any marginal gains, because then that becomes unsustainable for your business over time. So with that context, John, what are your thoughts on how do you efficiently grow a business? Well, I suppose you know, the most obvious thing is, is the, the, the state you want the efficiencies to scale. As you scale up, you want efficiencies that you're not just maintaining the same margin, you're actually increasing it as you grow. I suppose that's the, the big challenge that many, many companies face. And looking at them, I can narrow it down almost to uh, the two most common methods that they use are automation and outsourcing. There, there are some companies that grow internally and the, the whole company grows as, as they scale up. But a lot of them seem to be going the opposite way. They, they, they're, they're outsourcing stuff now. Some of the biggest companies in the world, turns out a lot of what they do is outsourced. So you know, one of your key things there, your key challenges, I would guess, is defining what gives you your strategic value because you don't want to outsource that. But if you can if you can get that defined and get that defined accurately, you can outsource or automate pretty much everything else. Yeah, indeed. And therefore, when a business is actually outsourcing everything in order to grow or pretty much just acting as a middleman in that business model, what do they have apart from their brand reputation, perhaps? Is that all that's left really being effectively a middleman? that's providing that assurance to the end customer? That can be, but there are clear um, risks involved with that. <clears throat> but And I can't remember the name of the company. It's a, it, it used to be one of the major bike companies, bicycle companies did that. They outsourced everything to Giant, the, you know, the brand now. They didn't have a brand at that time, and they were just a pure manufacturer. But that's what they, they that other the bike company did. I, I can't remember the name of it now, but they basically became middlemen they just acted as you know taking the stuff and then they even stopped acting as middlemen they introduced giant to their distributors all around the world to get them to do it and they were just taking a cut off but then giant did the obvious thing they went and said we're no longer supplying to this other brand here we're creating our own brand giant do you just want to take our bikes or you just can go off and find some other brand because that brand can no longer supply us because we're not going to manufacture for them anymore and in the end giant became a giant Bicycle brands, having done the other company or business, so that's the wrong way to do it. Just becoming a middleman. Eventually, the, the people that you're you're in the middle of will get together and will cut you out. But then you look at uh, you know, the largest you know, company you can claim to be the largest now, but Apple, one of the largest companies in the world uh, by any definition of the word, they outsource everything. You know, back in the day, manufact they manufactured their own hardware, and you can say, well, that was their strategic you know competency. That's what gave them an advantage. But they they you know Tim Cook came along and you know came with, with a 
when, when Steve Jobs came back and they looked and said, actually, no, what our strategic advantage is, is designing the stuff. We'll outsource the manufacturer a heck of a lot. You know, is it cheaper or is it not? What it was was more flexible. It meant they could scale up without having to, you know, enlarge the company. And if, if things went bad, they could scale back. And that was the, the manufacturers, the outsourced manufacturers problem to make sure there were enough staff and various things. And and they went on then to become the, you know, the biggest company in the world by outsourcing the stuff. And a lot of companies tend to do that. I mean, you know, when you when you look even in a company, you know, I'm, I'm consulting in a company at the moment and they do uh, projects, a lot of projects, but they outsource an awful lot of their project managers. They don't have them hired in-house. They don't need them. That's not what their, you know, th- their strategic value is organizing the overall thing, but specific individual projects, they don't need to hire project managers on a full-time basis. They outsource to a, a full-time project management company who will do that. And lots of companies do that. The, the essentials of this world and even the, the big six and that in consultants, they'll have people that are practically full-time working for other large companies. Why would they, you know, why would other large companies not just hire permanent staff? Well, they'd outsource it because this is not their, they need this particular role filled, but it's not what gives them a strategic advantage. So they've outsourced it. And when they no longer need it or if they need to scale, they can outsource more. And if they need to dial back, they can lower down. Gives them a lot of flexibility. And I think that's probably one of the key things, the scaling is having the flexibility that if you if you scale too quickly, you can dial it back. And if suddenly there's a big burst of demand, you can just go out to outsource and get more people without having to go through all the hiring process and all the, the problems that that could raise in the future. Yeah, cheaper isn't better. And outsourcing itself isn't cheap over time. Like if you consider the cost of a contractor versus a permanent employee, it, I think overall on a fringe basis it's cheaper but on a cash basis contracting is more expensive especially because contractors don't usually take holidays and they're on day rates which can add up but at the same time you're right if you don't have the demand then contractors they're on very short notice periods if any and they can just be released without any implications so you're not having to provide severance pay so in this regard the um the costs of discontinuing that relationship are a lot less and yeah as you say flexibility but with a caveat that you may end up having a sh- uh, periods where there are a shortage of talent yeah, and yeah. therefore yeah contractors then have some bargaining power if they're commercially minded but again it, it is that flexibility though that you know you can scale up you can scale back and you can go to different sources I mean, you know, again, going back to the, the example of Apple, it's not just them. Nearly all those tech companies outsource their, their thing. And Foxconn is one of the big ones. But there are several other similar companies. And a lot of these companies use them all. You know, they're, they're, they're the biggest one for the iPhone, say. But the iPhone is made by other manufacturers, not just them, on a small, much smaller scale. But it does mean that if, if they can't facilitate you go to someone else uh, and, and that's probably one of the key things if you're going to to do that is hey you do not outsource your strategic advantage apple samsung none of them have outsourced the design part of what they do that's internal that's their business that's what makes them special what they have outsourced even samsung who have their own manufacturing things but they still have outsourced a lot of the, the hardware so and even intel are now looking at you know again you would think their key advantage was that they manufacture their own chips but they've been looking now with, with a new strategic direction of outsourcing to some of the, the chip man, uh, foundry manufacturers in taiwan and that and they will then focus on design 
uh, that kind of thing. So, yeah, the, the key part of that is making sure you actually know what gives you your strategic advantage so that you keep that in-house and, and outsource everything else. I suppose we're talking about very large companies there. I was going to say, yeah. On a, a smaller like, one, though, you, you would still outsource. I mean, you, you might outsource your accountant. You know, why hire a full-time bookkeeper? You know, if you're a small five-man operation, why hire a full-time bookkeeper? Your accountant, who you probably have to hire in any way to look after your taxes and that, because, you know, a, a bookkeeper is probably not going to be able to do that for you. But a lot of these accounting places will actually do your accounts for you as well, your bookkeeping, at a reasonable enough rate. So use them. Or if they can't cover it, they can recommend someone, one of exactly. the companies that they work with, or they'll have strategic partnerships to exactly. be able to offer some form of full service. And if they don't, if they can't do it at a cost eff effective rate, then they'll probably pass the business on, but maybe take a finder's fee or something like that in order to, yeah. In order that. to, yeah. I, I know in the past, like early on in my career, I, I worked in practice in, in others. They didn't do bookkeeping services, but they did recommend a bookkeeper and they didn't take a cut. Where, where the thing was, was, you know, their clients who needed a bookkeeper, they'd recommend this bookkeeper, that particular bookkeeper, if he had clients who needed an auditor, he'd recommend the auditor. And they got on quite well. And, and there was good quality of work being done on both sides there. But yet that was one of the issues. And it allowed a lot of small companies to grow because, you know, at a certain point, you can't keep looking after your own accounts. It's, it's wasting your time. You could be doing something else. You could be earning money, not just doing that. But you don't quite have the money to be hiring somebody to come in to do it. Well, outsource it. it, it at that scale, it's cheaper usually. And then you can scale up because if, as you do more and more and more of the specialist bookkeeping organization, they should be able to handle taking on more work up to the point where you're hiring one of them full time. Then you might be able to decide whether you want to hire someone in-house or keep it out. But as you're scaling up to it, you can use the, the external. I'm just using bookkeepers as an example. The same goes for everything else. I, I myself have outsourced a lot of my marketing content creation. That's not my strategic strong point. So why should I bother trying to do it myself? I've outsourced it on a, on a small scale, obviously. But, uh, you know, but they're the, the ways to think that if it's not what's going to make you different to the market, then just outsource it if you can. Yeah. And do it intelligently as well, because there's certain things I do on the marketing side that are relating to my personal brand mm -hmm. that are automated. But I can't say they're great because things like um, scheduling and testing, I'm not a marketer. So I can see the stats, what works, what doesn't, or what seems to work, because sometimes a post on social media that didn't get much of a response, say the first time I post it, second time, it may be really, really popular. So it's hard to gauge what resonates with people at the time. It's all a bit random. So there are things that marketers probably know about, or at least the good ones, as to how to, how to identify what resonates, especially in your area. And yeah, I'm, I'm learning how to market. I'm of the different opinion that you can't completely outsource your marketing because you have to know the value you bring to a client and how you help them. But I think in terms of the process, I think marketing outsourcing is great as a shortcut, as you say, to create a, well, that growth, right? You're looking for customers. Well, I'll just confirm just in case anybody listening is thinking I meant to outsource all the marketing. I've outsourced the content creation part. I haven't got time to be, you know, I'm doing so. But I will tell them what content I want created and I'll, you know, review it and all that. But they'll create it. But they won't be contacting any uh, 
potential clients on my behalf. That's all down to, to me. As, as you said, for our size, you know, one man operation type of businesses, our branding, our personal thing is a key, you know, determinant. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not in our situation, I'm not proposing that you, you, you let somebody else do the marketing one on one with potential clients, because that's probably, you know, a, a strategic advantage that you have is, is, is being able to have that knowledge and that expertise to, to do that. But, uh, but so some companies, maybe that is exactly what they do. They, they outsource everything to it. But that's the key thing. Figure out what you don't need to do, what needs to be done, but not necessarily by you. And it may, and, and look into outsourcing, it may work out cheaper than that. Because as things stand, I, I don't do a lot of content marketing, so it's easy. But if I needed to scale up, I can. And it won't be any major impact on me um, to, to get more content. And then you raise the thing there that you automate a lot. That would be the second thing to automation. Um, again, you know, you have to pick and choose what you automate. But, you know, stuff that's um, repetitive can be automated. It doesn't require an awful lot of refinement that can be automated. And stuff that's um, scheduled. Like I, I know you use a lot of schedulers because you create your own content in the marketing. But you can schedule it then when you have time, you can sit down and go into your your the software you use and you can schedule when these are going to be done. So you've automated that part, which means then during the rest of the week when you're busy, you don't have to worry about posting something that you've already created. It will get posted for you by your automation uh, automation software. So yeah, I think automation is is a big thing as well to be able to pick and choose the bits. Because that's obviously even cheaper than outsourcing. You know, you, you buy one piece of software or design it or whatever and, and set it running. And there you go. It's automated. It won't cost you any more. Exactly. And as you say on the automation piece, there's an argument for build or buy. And it seems like it's such a competitive industry. It's almost a race to the bottom in the sense that you can pick up so many different tools so cheaply. And also in terms of automation, if you're a one-man band, there's no reason you can't automate a lot of your process uh, in terms of the administration because there's no code API where you can APIs which you can you can actually program the instructions and join apps together. So, for example, your your billing system to your payment platform and then your accounting system they can all get joined up and then you send that data to a database so you've got your CRM, you've got your customer history based on the parameters, and there's your analytics that right there. And and while it sounds like if somebody was listening and, and hasn't done any coding, it, it sounds like you, you've just described a huge amount of work and a huge thing, but it's not. If you search, there's software that already does all that for you, and you literally just give it the passwords for the stuff that your, your accounting software that you're using, give it the passwords and it will do it. You don't actually have to it sounds there like you've just described something that will take weeks of research, months of walking and all that. And well, no, actually, it, it would take, you know, do a search on Google on a Sunday evening or, or use DuckDuckGo, you, whatever you want to use yourself. And you'll find software that will do it. Find the one that's cheapest, well, not cheapest, but best value for you that it does it. And then sign up, buy it, subscribe to it, whatever way it is. And 
give it the passwords of the software that you're using. It will, it will take up after the rest. And you've literally two hours of a, of a weekend spent. You have everything automated that will save you, you know, half a day a week going forward. So it's, it's doable. It's no longer just for the big, big companies that use ERPs and EPMs and CRMs and all the various software that can do this. Now it's open to people like you and me, one man bands and everything in between. Um, exactly. And then it all comes down to what, what pain points you're solving, what your what need are you filling in the market, and then how big is that market? And then it's all math. How much are you pricing it at and what volumes are you expecting to sell? Are you selling a few items at a high price? So you're a premium supplier, or are you going for volume? selling it at the lowest price possible, keeping your operations costs low, but then hitting volumes at scale. And again, there's multiple ways to grow revenue. It could be product driven to your existing customers or you're expanding and you're looking to acquire new customers. And there's a couple of things with new customer acquisition. First off, it's more expensive than nurturing your existing customer base because you have to pay for advertising or you have to build up the relationship and the trust over time, which means promotions, which means maybe having the initial sample offer that gets people excited about what you're providing. And then there is the point where you need to think about, well, eventually I'm going to have to try and make money out of these customers. So initially you might be offering samples at a loss, but then as you build up, You'll be charging more for those products and eventually flipping that into profit. And again, there's that funnel, right? You're you're building up awareness, then interest, and then purchasing. So again, it's how are you growing? What's your strategy for growth? And do you have capacity to service that growth effectively? And how do you grow capacity along with that demand? So first, try and create that demand or build that demand and then service it in order to grow your business. And that piece has to be planned very well, or else if you're not planning, it's unlikely to be profitable because you're just, you know, they say, what is it? Revenues, vanity, profit, sanity, cash is reality. So it depends on the type of business you've got and how you're growing and how you plan to, you know, I think Excellent. that's how, how outsourcing can help you because if you're a small manufacturer and you're doing that, you're, you're, you know, even selling at the loss or you cut even or something initially to, to scale up and, and get the volume and that. But the reality is if you, if you need, if you've worked out, you need X amount of volume for next year and you buy the equipment and do it all in house now. If there's any delay in getting that volume or if you have any hiccups or whatever, you've still got all the costs involved and the repayments of the loans, of, the, of running the machinery, of firing the people to, to run that. Whereas if you've outsourced, you can outsource to somebody at their, the level that you're doing now and simply increase the amount of work as you go. So you're, you're paying as you go as opposed to paying upfront. And, you know, if it doesn't grow as quickly as you'd like, then you just simply don't expand as quickly as you are planning, but you're not committed to it. Yeah, it's a great way to de-risk the startup stage. So when you're introducing your business to the market, being able to flexibly increase or, or start to serve people and then be able to withdraw without, without any risk because you're not investing in huge amounts of big assets, that's, that's pretty tempting on new businesses. But then at the same time, at some point, you're going to reach that inflection where the outsourcing party is charging at a margin. So you might think, well, when when am I big enough to start thinking about flipping it 
and it makes and there's a business case for actually moving away from using even the cloud. I think it was Basecamp that have spoken about that they're switching their servers to become on-premise because they can't they can't justify the economic spend because they spent so much money on external hosting that they've realized if they'd brought if they bring it in-house they can reinvest I don't know like uh, half half a million dollars into marketing and that marketing would have done more for their business in terms of profits than actually having cloud hosting now again there's upfront cost to that but there is a point I think where you need to consider at what point does outsourcing not make sense I think in the early stages it's great for de-risking your growth but when you reach stability if you've got a stable customer base stable revenue then you're in that place of maturity. And at that point, it's all about, well, you're not going to grow much, but you need to think about growing your profits through cost reduction. I suppose, though, at that stage, you're no longer scaling, at least not to the same extent. So therefore, the scaling tactics no longer apply. But then some some companies um, will continue to, to, to do it. Um, you've got companies like Amazon who never outsourced there what what you would have taught at the time was well you know the databases the clouds hosting that's not what they do they could outsource that they chose no that's that's key element of what we do we're keeping it in-house and then they realize they've done it so well in-house they could be the outsourced party the outsourced two party by everybody else who now uses amazon web services and that which which grew grew up and, and ended up being for a long time their most profitable side of their company. The Amazon retail wasn't the, where they made the profits. It was the web service, web servers um, that, that did that. So, but then you've got other companies then are very large and still use outsourced, you know, like Apple that I mentioned earlier, they have no intentions whatsoever of ever bringing manufacturing back in house. Even, even the chips, that's their key, you know, strategic thing now is designing their own chips. And what are they doing? They're, they're getting the, TSMC, their outsourced manufacturer, to build new factories in the US, which may or may not, you see the reports, whether they'll ever actually manufacture chips that are used in Apple's devices. But that's what they're doing. They're, they're um, investing in and helping their suppliers to expand so that they don't have to bring Atom back in-house. That's never going to happen for, from their point of view. So even, even when you reach that maturity, some companies will decide, no, you know what? This particular part is not our problem. We don't want it to become our problem. We're not good at it. They are our outsourced partner. Now, getting there is the problem because that's, you know, as I said earlier, you can, as you scale, as you need more stuff, you go to your outsourced thing and tell them to make more. But they're not making their money just from you. They've got lots of other customers. Will they be willing to make more for you if it's going to cause problems for the other customers? And the other risk is, what happens if one of their other customers is huge and they've come and said, we need more capacity from your factory to build us stuff. And you get pushed out because you're only a little guy trying to scale up, but you're not big for their point of view. They've got much bigger customers, much more important customers than you. So they kind of cut you out because now we, we, we can't scale up quick enough to satisfy this other customer. So we're going to have to cut back on our smaller customers and you're one of them, you're gone. So there are risks. It's not risk free. You need somebody you can rely on, somebody you can trust. And, you know, how do you do that? How, how do you? It, it is a fine line. Yeah, you have to de you have to de-risk your customer base through diversification. As you say, you can't be too reliant on one big customer. But I find that 
usually a lot of the big customers. They don't contribute a lot in terms of gross margins to the overheads. So I guess in terms of that, yeah, maybe from, you can. From, you from can. your point of view, it, it, it's not so much a customer, it's an outsource, it's a supplier. You don't want to be focused too much on one supplier. But the problem is, I suppose, if you're too small, you don't have enough that you can outsource to two separate suppliers. You know, you've just enough that one supplier will take, but then that's leaving you very uh, exposed. If that supplier has another customer who's bigger than you and, and or, or just is, is not going to be able to expand as you expand, you know, so, so picking your supplier, picking your outsource partner is very crucial. Automation, I suppose, is a little bit easier, you know, that knowing what to automate. But if, if you've slightly automated the wrong thing, you can change, you know, it's a lot less hassle than an outsource partner to just change an automation piece of software. But even software can come under risk of going under as well. Certain mm. vendors may either go under because they run out of cash they don't have enough customers like yourself or they get acquired by a competitor and then suddenly the competitor says sorry we're decommissioning this software you either come over to our brand because we're not gonna we're not Mm. gonna support two brands doing the same thing you come over to our software or you have to find another supplier and it's getting very difficult nowadays to uh, find a piece of software that you can just buy outright and have it downloaded onto your computer. You know, it's nearly everything is either subscription or even if you can get a lifetime subscription deal, it's still hosted somewhere, which means when they go, you lose out, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're stuck. So yeah, that, that can be tough. But, but even back in the day, I remember a long time ago, um, all of the accounting software used to be, you bought it outright and it was on your computer and you could have a, um, support with them where you get updates but you didn't need it the software would still work and we use the piece of software called Taz Books in the, in the place where I was but they were bought out by Sage and in fairness at the time the products that Sage sold and, and Taz Books Taz Books was better that's why so many people wanted why Sage bought them but then they stopped bothering with, with Taz Books they, they were focused on Sage they took some of the intellectual property from Taz Books and put it in and improved their own product but they left Taz to, to basically die off that it wasn't supported and um, we ended up having to change then that even though we owned the software and it would still work without any updates or that. We were scaling too much that we had outgrown Taz and there was no longer a Taz product that we could move to. I had a similar thing even before that, a product called Finax, I think it was called. And again, it was bought, it was on the, the software. But what happened was that company, I don't know if they were taken over somebody or if they went bust or whatever happened, but that's that software disappeared. And it was show you how long ago it was. We had bought new computers that had Windows XP on them. The, you know, at that time, the latest and greatest uh, version of Windows. Finax didn't, wasn't compatible with XP and was no longer in development. So we had to change products, <laughs> um, you know, because we updated our hardware. So that's a risk as well that even when you do the automation at the point where if it's some kind of hosted in the clouds, that service may no longer become available. And if you buy it on your own computer, you update your hardware doesn't work with the new hardware, doesn't work with the new, the latest uh, operating system or whatever. So there are risks to everything. We, we can't give people the idea as to how to completely de-risk everything. We can just, <laughs> and, and on a short-term basis, you can, you can uh, use automation, use outsourcing to help you expand scale quickly. But as a long-term thing, everybody will run into problems. Even the big companies run into problems, right? Yeah, there's always a risk. The biggest risk being obsolescence. So you always have to keep renewing. Thinking of that point, 
we've been talking about efficient business growth, but what's the end game? I know that when I was working for a coffee company, we were financed by private equity. So that was the strategy. We were growing 100% triple digit growth year on year, all through acquisition. Organic was probably minus 10% per year because, you know, you were buying you were buying a customer base, but you were losing customers through attrition, switching brands and things like that, changing the service levels. So, and also losing staff, a lot of who were salespeople. So you were rationalizing your Salesforce. A lot of them took their customers with them when they moved to competitors. So, but the whole purpose of that was it wasn't about efficient growth. It was about growth in the top line, which hopefully translated to also growth in the bottom line, which we made sure we did because we'd um, we'd make sure we didn't grow our admin base as fast as we were growing our customer base. So there was a market case for that. And it was to dress up a business for an eventual sale using a war chest. So it was market consolidation strategy of a mature market. And therefore, the end game was to sell on the business. Now, do you think that a goal for a lot of companies that are looking for growth should be eventually disposing of the business, especially when you're looking for large growth? Now, it could be that you're looking to have it for the long term. So you want sustainable growth. But what do you think are the motivators for growing a business at speed, at scale? What What do you think in terms of your experiences? So for mine was the exit strategy. Are you going for an IPO? Are you going to sell it on to someone else, a new set of owners? Or is there some other reason behind it? Like for a small business, you want to grow because you want to keep your best people. You want to give them career opportunities rather than being maybe a manager. They can be a director or even a C-suite executive within your company. Well, that's, that's, I suppose they're, 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 they're two others besides an exit strategy that they're growing in order to sell. Um, that, that I've come across is well, one, they're growing in order to survive because, you know, especially in newer industries, it's kind of going to be probably only a handful of even that of companies that can actually make money and everyone else is going to go bust. So you need to grow quickly in order to be one of the handful that can make money and survive. And then the other, other side of uh, growth, which is, um, is, is probably the best one from a sustainability point of view because you're, you're actually thinking long term. Is that they 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 want to retire into into this business? If you know what I mean. That um, yes, they're putting in all the effort themselves now, working, but they want to grow to a certain level where they can be the chairman or the CEO, and they can still have income, but they can take a step back and have a business below them that can run itself without them. A, they could sell it if they wanted. That that's their retirement pension fund. Effectively, they've sold the business. Or B, they could just let it continue to grow, and they'll have a salary out of it without having to put in too much work. I think that's a lot of the idea of a lot of things now. A lot of, of business owners um, struggle to let go that they are still in the business and walking in the weeds at a stage where, no, they really need to be the visionary and they need to have stepped back and be kind of guiding the, the, the business almost as a guru for their business, but not down in the weeds doing the work. They should have let their, their staff do it. And that can be a challenge for them. But the idea is that that's, you know, that's why they're trying to grow is they want the business to survive and they want to be able to, to you know, it's, it's their long-term future uh, and that will make them do it sustainable, you would hope. So the legacy game saying yeah. that, yeah, I want this business to be built. I want it to be a lasting testimony to my efforts. And also, ideally, I want to be able to 
free up my time to do other things. Not just that I don't, maybe they enjoy doing that business. Maybe they're addicted to it, but they don't need to be doing it full time. They can be doing, as you say, more strategic stuff or even other things like, what's the word I'm looking for? So philanthropy, they can look at charitable causes, situations or things that interest them that they'd also like to be contributing to. So becoming a bigger contributor to society. And I know some people as well, just like, you know, I I, I do know of a business owner who grew a, a big business. And he ended up selling out of it, which when I heard that he was gone, no longer the CEO of this business, I was shocked because this was hit. You know, I always thought of it was his business. It was almost like its success was his success. And then I, I, I more recently heard he started another business in a completely different area. So not in, he's not gone into competition. He wasn't bought out by somebody. And then as soon as the no complete clause was gone, gone back into, he's gone into a completely different type of business. Apple seems to be just as competitive. He just wants that. That's what he enjoys doing is growing a new business. You now it took him a long time to grow the previous one. Don't think he's quite as dedicated to the next lot. You know, they're not quite the same, but you know, that can be a, a motivating factor as well. It's just people like to grow a business, don't really have an end game. They just want to grow the business. And, and then when they reach a level where they think, actually, no, this is the target I set. I'm successful now. Then they'll think, well, what's next? Will I sell out? Will I back off? What will happen? Do you think it's a bit naive not to have an end game, though, especially when you're looking to grow? I mean, survival could be the the motivator, but I after think, that point... I think in the back of your head, you should. If you're setting up a business or if you're thinking you have, you have a business and you're thinking, I'm going to start scaling, have an end game as in, well, why? You know, the, the, you know start with the why. The book goes, why do you want to scale? What's your ultimate thing? Because... You could scale in a way, depending on what your end game is, you could scale in a way that will not achieve it, but will still scale. You, you, know, you know, we went about was just, your company that, that you mentioned earlier, the coffee company that was scaling by buying in lots of other companies with the intention of selling on when it got to a, a certain size. Now, but if your intention is to have a long-term viable company that is going to become the family company and will be, you know, other generations will take over and you'll retire into the company type of thing, become the chairman or whatever and, and be able to relax a bit more and things like that. If that's your goal, then scaling like that coffee company is not going to achieve it because that's short term really scaling that they, they're selling on to somebody else and it'll be up to that somebody else to turn it into a sustainable business. They've just made it a big business. It won't be efficient either because especially if you don't have a clearly defined strategy, you haven't defined success. Mm. Whereas in the situation with the coffee company, it was buy businesses at two to five times the multiples and then sell at 10 times eventually. Yeah. So simple, really simple strategy. Yeah. And, and if you can define that goal, yeah. then it's easier to follow. You have the clarity to execute. Whereas if, if your, your goal is a long-term sustainable company that you are going to stay in, Buying companies at two to five times to sell at 10 times isn't really that good because you're never going to sell at 10 times. So what's happening? You're buying companies at two to five times, you know, their, their revenue or whatever you've agreed that the prices are with them. But where are you getting that money from? How are you financing it? Um, have you just borrowed an awful lot and completely leveraged your own company, which means you're now spending the rest of your time working to pay the interest on the loans? It was a war chest. From a Middle Eastern fund. But but in that particular situation, they had it cleared out that they were planning to sell at 10 times. Yeah. And that's how they, but I'm talking about 
if your intention was to have it to stay in your company long term, then that's not a viable scaling option because you're never going to get the 10 times sale proceeds when you sell out you're not selling out you're keeping it so what you've done is you've just bought an awful lot of companies to make your company bigger but you've got an awful lot of debt even the war chest where did that war chest came from it came from investors putting in investors wanted their money back they were getting their money back in that situation because they were going to sell the business for 10 times a multiple 10 times multiple but if you're staying in the company you're never selling it for the 10 times multiple so how are you paying back that war chest Regardless of whether it's debt or equity, you have to pay it back. You, it's not sustainable. So that's not a scaling strategy to use if you want to stay in the business long term. It's a, it's a perfectly legitimate one if you're planning to sell, but not if you're planning to stay. Yeah. And funding a business growth is also key. You have to have a good funding strategy. You have to be able to say, well, if I'm confident I can get that growth, hmm. then you you may find debt a desirable path. Although... Right now, the days of cheap debt or at least cheaper debt are over. We are in the end of 2022, heading into potentially a global economic recession. (laughs) So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how we get to growth going forward, at least in the medium to short term in the next five years, I'd say. I think, um, and for a lot of small companies, it will have to be more, there won't be huge expanses. You're not going to double in size in, in the next year. You're going to have to accept, you know, 10, 20% growth will be good. And the key thing, as you you, you kind of made mention of at the start of, of, of the, the conversation, it's not revenue that, that you really should be looking to grow. It's profits, gross profits specifically, you know, in uh, you know, methodologies that I use and that growth profits tend to be the, that's the key marker. That's the KPI to, to measure. And you can increase revenue and make losses. I've seen businesses do that, increase revenue and they've, they've caused, made losses as a result. So revenue is not good if it's not increasing your gross margin, your, your gross profits. And then your net profits at the end of the day, well, you know, you can increase them by cutting costs, but that's not necessarily a sustainable thing either. At a certain point, you can't cut any more costs and maintain a, a growing business. Whereas gross profits will tend to, um, you can increase your gross profits and control your admin costs, then you're going to be able to do a sustainable growth for the the medium to long term. Exactly. I mean, you have to, even in the short term, when you're cutting back on fixed overhead, that still puts pressure on the business. You need to get that break-even point right and increase the capacity, scaling up or scaling down to meet the additional customer demand. Maybe if there's peak periods, you bring in seasonal workers, but you have to be wary what you're doing to your back end. Agree that you should automate as much as you can, especially on the bits that can be automated quickly and for quick and easy wins. But you have to be also aware that ultimately it's not just about supplying product. You have to be able to service it. Customer satisfaction, customer loyalty is critical to a business, especially if you want to be sustainable. I mean, that's why businesses use Net Promoter Score as a KPI, because your customer retention, your customer loyalty metric, that's a key one. Your customers then become your promoters, hence Net Promoter. And I suppose the only other key thing is that we went into a little bit you know, more about um, outsourcing and automation and what to look out for there. I suppose that one of the key things I've found were, you know, mergers and acquisitions uh, as your copy company did and uh, um, ignoring them because I think they, you know, given that they their plan was to sell, if your plan is to to buy another company, but to keep 
you know, to do it. So then you're looking for a longer term. I think one of the key things there, which uh, is causes one of the biggest, uh, whether it's a big mar- merger or it's a merger of two smaller companies or an acquisition of smaller companies, it's it's the culture. How how successful that will be is not on how successful the individual companies have been. It's how closely related they are in culture. If you buy a company that has a completely different culture to you, we're all the best will in the world, no matter how great your employees are, how great their employees are, they will not mix. They will not, it will not be a successful acquisition. And the biggest example of that at the moment is, is Twitter. You know, Elon Musk has his culture and Twitter had a completely different culture. And now we're seeing, you know, everything has hit the fan and it, it just doesn't merge. It doesn't mix. Whether the company, you know, it's, it's, it's a very large company, probably will survive, or it'll be a very different company at the end of it. And it doesn't look like Musk is going to change his culture to suit Twitter. He's forcing Twitter to change to suit him. But, you know, half the half the workforces was let go by Musk and half of who are left are leaving because yeah. they just, you know, <laughs> the culture has completely almost overnight changed. Now, that's an ex- extreme example, but it, it does happen with every other type of company as well. And it's an extreme example because it's one person has a whole, because he owns the company. His culture is now, you know, clashing with it. But in two companies that are, you know, even if one of them completely outswamps the other one, if they have two different cultures, then the one you've just bought, the much smaller company you've just bought, the staff will leave. It won't match if the cultures were completely different you need to make sure that cultures are, are aligned yeah you have to have cultural alignment because ultimately you need team alignment and i think we could probably do an episode on culture with twitter as a case study it yeah. is very compelling i mean on one side you've got elon musk the hustler the billionaire but also someone who i know tesla are notorious for having that grinder culture right Mm-hmm. They they chew up employees, they burn them out and spit them out. Whereas on the Twitter side, they're very softly spoken, touchy-feely, very politically correct almost. Well, I won't say snowflake, but you get the idea that they're very well taken care of mm-hmm. <laughs> to the point of the perception being that they're very pampered. And it's definitely a contrast of complete polar opposites. So you, you can see where it's uh, Elon's taking a very, shall we say, autocratic approach to say it's either my way or you get out. But the problem is, I think with that, his way or get out, a lot of the key people are saying, OK, I'll get out. But it's funny, actually, that in the immediate term, nothing stopped on Twitter. People mm. are still sending tweets. So there's a lot of it which was clearly automated. Yeah. And then it's just really over the long term what's going what's gonna to break down. Because I saw a tweet from Elon, funnily enough, and he says it actually works better than ever. So that is, I think there's an element of bluster in that, but we're going to see over the next three to six months, what are the real ramifications of Twitter? I I would still be inclined to say, though, that that is a classic example of what not to do in an acquisition situation uh, you know be be aligned with your culture so that you don't have this whole thing because you know twitter may survive but i think it'll be a very different twitter if if musk if the musk culture becomes the twitter culture um, it'd be a very different organization and i didn't really take kindly to the fact that he trashed the former twitter employees personally yeah. plus i've noticed that on my twitter accounts i'm getting more bots following me as well which was something that musk was adamant was one of the reasons he tried to pull out the first time he was trying to acquire Twitter. So I don't know. There's there's this whole MVP attitude he has. And especially when you're releasing cars, you don't want to be releasing junk, highly branded junk that isn't 
doesn't quite fit together, doesn't quite work quite well, or you because you're cutting on the back end and hoping the customers don't realize it, you're basically gambling on quality. And I think that's... If- I know it's kind of a little bit off topic from, from what we've started on, but I, I, I will make the comment. I think Musk in this situation, as I said, maybe we should have it as a separate thing. It could come back to bite him because, and you know, a lot of Twitter is automated and will keep on running. That's fine. But a lot of the people who are leaving are the people who are developing it, making improvements, you know, fixing up things and things like that. If they leave, that means then what it is is what it says. You know, who's going to go to work for Musk in that situation? And a lot of the people who left, you know, Twitter, the idea of Twitter is not anything spectacular. They don't. They, there are many competitors out there. And now suddenly there are an awful lot of people who um, have a great deal of experience with this type of product who are available to be hired by or to set up their own competitors suddenly you should you could find over the next few years there'll be enough twitter my you know people will be saying oh twitter will never go away but people were saying myspace will never go away back in the day when myspace was a, a thing and it's gone now and who else was there with bebo or something like that there, there's a lot of them that fell by the wayside and this could be the twitter moment where it falls by the wayside could be elon musk's myspace and actually there is a few things i'd love to bring but let's save it for another episode mm. certainly on you know the fact that he's loosening the the reins and the self-regulation to allow more free speech. It could be a few regulatory missteps on that platform, which I guess we'll just have to wait and see how it all plays out. Yeah. Again, social media, there's a lot of activism. So yeah, you don't want to be cancelled for saying the wrong thing. But at the same time, people should have a voice, whether it's the right one or not. And I guess to an extent, that voice also needs to be regulated so it doesn't cross the line. You know, in every society, we have rules and norms that should be respected. So again, that's not an easy thing to handle. And if you've got an open platform like Twitter where people can register, can put out any thoughts there, maybe without and and have to self-regulate to make sure, well, is what I'm saying socially appropriate? Or I mean, am I being controversial or am I completely, you know, blazing past that line you shouldn't cross i think just just from a business point of view though the, the key problem there is the complete clash culture clash between the new owner and what the business was and and that's that's a key thing though if you're if, if that's how you're going to expand that's how you're going to scale that's how you're going to grow is by buying other businesses now i know he wasn't expanding or scaling when he did that it's just a, a, it was just a good extreme example of a culture clash but that's what you want to avoid that um, the two businesses need to have a similar culture that you can't have one, which is a grinding culture and another one, which is a more laissez-faire culture and and suddenly expect that they're going to merge and merge well. They won't. They'll cause problems for each other and it will be a failure of a, of a merger. So, you know, with the with the outsourcing, it's about picking the right outsource partners, making sure that you know, and making sure that it's what you're outsourcing is not strategically done for you. With the automation, it's about making sure you're automating the correct things that can be automated and with the acquisition scaling it's well make sure that it's a culture match that you're 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 not just buying a company because it's a nice big company and you're thinking i'd like those customers with me and make sure that the company itself has a good culture that matches your culture yeah and i think we can close it out on that and yeah thank you This was Business Breaks. We discussed growing your business efficiently and covering that in one word, scaling your business. So, John, thank you very much. Pleasure as always. Thanks, Dante. Talk to you next time. Cheers. 
This podcast shares experiences and insights gained from business, IT, and digital finance. Hosted by two leaders who have made the leap themselves, this show is dedicated to helping listeners think differently about their career aspirations.